0: another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Occasionally, really good ideas come from people who aren't me. I'm being facetious, but one of the wisest things that anyone ever told me, is, Bruce, if you consistently find yourself as the smartest person in the room, maybe you should change rooms. And occasionally, I'll have a listener or a reader on social media who will give me a really good idea. And the title for this podcast is A Deluge of Darts. And the reason why it is called A Deluge of Darts is because Twitter user at non-ninja skills with a Z said to me a couple days ago, when you speak on the team's needs, it's like a deluge of pinpoint sharp darts. I'm guessing you already knew this, but I needed to tell you my opinion. And I thought that's a really good name for a podcast. I will try to remember to call the episode I do on team needs a deluge of darts. And here we are. So we're going to talk about team needs. But your perception of the needs of the team is based first on how close you think the Bills are. That's been a conversation that's been making its way around the Bills sphere. How close are the Bills? Close on the scoreboard and close in the chasm of work necessary to close the gap on the scoreboard could be two different things. And your perception of their closeness is going to influence what you believe their personnel needs to be. So, we're going to talk about needs today, but we're only going to talk about personnel needs, the actual positions on the team. So, here's where they're at they haven't lost a single game by two scores in two years. Objectively, they are close. Not a single game has been lost. By more than one score. That's insane. For two years. The question is, what is it that you think needs to be done to bridge the gap? If you think that they lose by one score because they lack timing, luck, and potentially talent, then you're likely to want to at least closely maintain course and you might think that their needs list is smaller. If you think they lose by one score because of a failure in philosophy, structure, or leadership, then you're likely to have a longer needs list and to want to change things up more significantly, including non-personnel changes like fire Shaw McDermott, which we already talked about. We are not going to talk about on this podcast because clearly it's not happening. So you start packaging your idea of what the team needs based on how close you think they are. So as you talk to someone, because remember, needs lists, they're opinion pieces. I cannot stress this enough. You are going to see many articles about needs going into free agency and the draft. Draft simulators will have the bill's needs listed. Every single one of those things is an opinion piece. It's based on their perception of the players that are on the roster versus not. Whether or not you think there is a need there is based upon how you feel about the people who are currently under contract. If, for example, Micah Hyde walks and you think Damar Hamlin is a starting caliber safety, you're going to have safety lower or not on the list at all. Which means that whether or not someone has safety high on the list low on the list or off the list tells you a lot about their perception of DeMar Hamlin. You see, it's an opinion piece. They're all opinion pieces. What we're about to talk about. It's my opinion. That's what it is. It's just my opinion. There is no objective needs list. As long as you have bodies at the position, then everything else is just an opinion. Now, for some cases, it's just going to be bodies. Like we have one player, who's a running back under contract. So you have to have people just for that reason. In which case, it's not really a skill injection as much of a body injection. You just add people because you got to fill out your roster. But everything you say about needs will be tied and viewed through the lens of how close you think the bills are. So if you're talking to someone who has a very different needs list or a very different needs chronology than you do, right? the ordering is different. Whether or not they want to address it first in free agency or in the draft or first in the draft and then maybe some, you know, late summer free agents. That's going to tell you based on the way that they answer that question, what their opinion is of the players who are currently on the roster. All needs discussions are opinion pieces. We have a tendency to think about them as objective facts and they're not. Mine is not an objective fact. What we were going to talk about today is not an objective fact. It's just my opinion. And we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty when it comes to needs. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Bruce's Mount Rushmore of needs for the Buffalo Bills in the 2024 offseason. And, of course, Mount Rushmore means there are four of them. But we're not going to do just positions because that's boring. I'm not going to say wide receiver. Boop. That's it. I am going to give you a specific type of of wide receiver that I'm looking for. Because again, it's an opinion piece. So yes, we need an injection of players at that position. But specifically, I'm thinking about what I wanted to see from the wide receiver core this year that I didn't. Not just, well, I want another wide receiver. Okay, cool. What kind of wide receiver do you want? For some people, it's going to be, I want a big bodied jump ball receiver. Just so you know, I never look for those people. Ever. I don't think they have overly significant efficiency value when it comes to an offense. Having that trait is great. But searching for that archetype, I don't think that's what I want at all. But we're going to go into a specific archetype of receiver. Archetype of the other people. Spoiler alert. Wide receiver is on my list. So we're not just going to do position. We're going to do archetype as well. So let's get started. Right off the bat, I already spoiled it. Two wide receivers with explosiveness down the field and with the ball in their hands. That's what I want. Not just any wide receiver. Not someone who I think can be a possession power slot kind of guy. We have Khalil Shakir. I like him in the slot in that role. Not somebody who I think, oh man, you know, this would be a really good, big, X receiver who can block and win contested catches in the red zone. That's not the archetype I'm looking for. I want people who can be explosive down the field and explosive with the ball in their hands. So when I'm looking at prospects and I'm thinking, gosh, I want that guy for the Buffalo Bills. It's not just because he's a wide receiver. Like that's not good enough. I want those specific traits and specifically I want two of them. Now this could change because the bills could sign a free agent wide receiver who fit that mold. But these are overall offseason wants for me. I know we say needs list, but truthfully this is a this is a wants list. Any need that is not objective is essentially a want. that's, that's we really use needs way too broadly. If it's a need, but it's variable based on the person you're talking to, it's not a need, it's a want. It's opinions of needs. So that's the first one. Two wide receivers with explosiveness down the field and with the ball in their hands. Number two, two, not one, two versatile safeties with spatial awareness, football IQ, and tackling ability. One of the things that we consistently do badly in the offseason is specifically scouting safeties. Most people do it poorly because they get excited about the wrong things. You see the guy coming downhill and blowing up a screen on a highlight. You go, yes, that's it. This is the guy. But you need to be able to do a lot of things to play safety. It is more important with safety than with almost any other position. Watch the all 22. Watch them try and run the alley against the run. Run. Watch them in the deep half. Watch them in the deep third. Watch them solo deep, deep middle. Because all these things you got to do in a Sean McDermott defense. Replacing Hyde and Poyer is a matter of finding people who are versatile. So if you have a safety who can't tackle, they're not going to be high on my list. They'll be lower. If you have a safety who just, you cannot take him out of the box. A safety who's essentially a a box linebacker, that doesn't do me any good. I don't want run defense-only safeties. If you can't play the pass, if you get lost in zone, I don't have much use for you. That's not the way this works. So I don't want one of them. I want two of them. Because number one, I don't want to count on Demar Hamlin. And number two, Jordan Poyer might not be with the team next year because they do have an opportunity to get out from that contract. It could be a complete turnover at safety. So I want two of those people. One of them can come via free agency if we want. One of them can come in the draft. You can draft one in the first and the fifth, whatever it is. Two, versatile safeties with spatial awareness, football IQ, and tackling. One, defensive tackle with two-gapping ability. Not just any defensive tackle, a specific type of defensive tackle. The reason why Daquan Jones was so valuable for this team is he changed the math fundamentally for the defense. If you can handle two gaps as a defensive tackle, that means there is one less gap that your linebackers have to be responsible for. And when you have players like Terrell Bernard and Matt Milano, you would like them to not have to handle two gaps. One of the issues that we constantly had with Tremaine Edmonds was a lot of times they asked him to process two gaps. And Tremaine Edmonds was not an elite processor. And so that was just exacerbating the thing that I don't think he did overly well. Not just a defensive tackle, a specific type of defensive tackle. So if you come here and you say, okay, I want to draft a a three-technique defensive tackle, a penetrating one-gap pass rush specialist at the bottom of the first round, I'm going to go, what? Yes, that's a good player. But that's not as significant of a need as having someone who can play next to at Oliver and to gap. Item number four. One running back with pass protection ability and between the tackles, prowess, and processing. The ability to run gap between the tackles and inside zone, those require processing skills. It's not just a, hey, run really fast in this straight line. Like, there, there's processing that goes along with that. I need a running back who can do the things that James Cook can't. I would prefer that James Cook was a more well-rounded back so that I could just say, get me a duplicate and keep the defense guessing because specialization breeds predictability. If you have specialized players on the field, you're tipping your hand to the defense. But the fact of the matter is, we don't have an all-around back. We have a specialized back. James Cook is really good at certain things and less good at other things. So if we're going to have him be one half of it, then I need somebody in the backfield who can do the other stuff, the stuff that he's not as good at. I need someone who is a pass protector. I need a Roshan Johnson. I need a between-the-tackles processor who can pass protect. Ideally, I would like James Cook to be better in the passing game as far as a receiving back. He's dropped a meaningful amount of touchdown passes this year, and I'm hoping that that will correct itself. But it's not just a running back. It's a specific type of running back. Pass protection ability, and between the tackles, prowess, and processing. And on the fly here, just in case, you know, we weren't sure that Bruce could operate that way, I'm going to add a fifth. We're going to add a fifth president to the Mount Rushmore. Just willy-nilly, because I feel like it. We're going to add one cornerback with length, zone awareness, fluidity, and tackling ability. You're losing Dane Jackson. You don't know if Kyrie is going to take the next step. You have no idea what you're getting in Travius White. You need, a, you need a body there. You don't need a starter. I feel strong that you can do very well with... Benford, Douglas, I'm good with them as your starters going into next year. But I don't want to count on the rest of it. So I'm not saying draft one in the first round because I think there are, there are likely to be as good players who fill a markedly stronger need. But I do need bodies there. You have a tendency to run short on corners and become vulnerable very fast. So I need bodies there. So I added a fifth on the fly. So those are my needs. But not just specifically positional needs. Those are my top five just archetype needs. We are going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. And thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We got some emails to get to. I usually get more emails right at the beginning of the off season and I don't have Plurality pie to get to. So it makes it an opportunity for me to be able to get to them. Um, if you want to email me, you can. I am Bruce Nolan at gmail.com. I got an email from Joe who asked me some questions about OC candidates who weren't Joe Brady, which is now moot because they hired him as of a couple of days ago. So, Joe, I just want to let you know, saw your email, but nothing more to talk about there. Timothy sends me an email and says, Our son is a freshman at Cormier Honors College in Longwood University. He is a political science major and made the dean's list his first semester. Smart young man. As his father, one of my responsibilities has always been to check his homework. I've done my best through the years of schooling. Months ago, I listened to you speak with Joe Marino. From that moment on, I became a fan of yours. I found your weekly podcast and began following you on X. I recently asked my son to give your show a listen. As a fan of the bills, he's a sponge for quality content. We listened to your most recent podcast together while eating pizza. We both paused and rewound the show several times to discuss it. This is not something we've done when listening to other content. My son takes an English course and a communications course this semester. You've provided him with some nice pointers in your way to tell them what you're going to tell them in that portion of the show. He even paused the show and made sure to look up certain vocabulary that you used. We're both impressed with the way you speak, the way you teach, and the way you carry yourself. We agreed that we would make listening to your show another thing we did each week together. Thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Have you ever considered doing audiobooks? I think you'd be great at it. Okay, now I have to be very, very careful in the way that I respond to this because I cannot give you any information as to what it is I do for a living. However, I will tell you that... One of the reasons why people choose to consume content or they don't is the method of communication. The facts on this show are not different than the facts elsewhere. I am not privy to, thanks Doug Whaley, any information out there that you cannot get elsewhere. Trust me, I am fully aware of this. People who are detractors of content creators in general We'll say things like, there is nothing that you can tell me that I can't Google. And guess what? They're right. You can Google literally every single fact that I give you. But you're not gonna know what to Google, how to Google it, or how to interpret it as well if you haven't listened to someone who can communicate it well. And that's what I wanna do. I wanna package information in a digestible format where you can walk away from it and go, huh, I've never heard anyone explain it that way before. If you are listening to a linebackers coach talk to you about a technique, we're going to talk about Bobby Babbage here in a second. But one of the reasons why I like Bobby Babbage is because he's an unbelievably talented teacher. His method of communication skills are so good that his linebackers can understand why they're doing something. And it can be downloaded into their brain in a way that allows it to stick, allows it to give context, and allows it to be executed upon. And that is a skill. Guess what? Anything Bobby Babbage is going to tell them, they can probably Google too. There's probably a YouTube video out there on that specific technique. But it wouldn't be communicated the way Bobby Babbage would be communicating it to. There is value, not just in facts. There is a value in delivering those facts. There's a value in delivering a perspective. And that's what I'm trying to achieve. That's what I want to do. Even though I'm very aware, I've said it a million times, I am a nobody. I am so aware. But you can listen to the exact same class. Timothy, your son can take the exact same class taught by two different teachers and walk out with very, very, very different levels of knowledge and perspective on a topic. The analogies that they use, the metaphors that they use, the structure of their conversation, the way they teach, all that stuff can be very different because that's a soft skill. Facts are just facts. They're hard skills. And thinking that the only thing that has value is the data just tells me that you haven't ever had to interpret it from two different people. I don't know if you've ever had data given to you that you needed to package or interpret to someone else. There's very significant differences between the way that data, the exact same data is presented by Bob versus Sally. One of them could present it really well and everyone who listens to them can be better for it. Or one of them can present it really poorly and everyone just leaves more confused and more frustrated. Brent says, Bruce, first, I want to thank you for what you do every week. I look forward to your honest, level headed, and fair assessment of the team. You've said some poignant things over the years, but I think the most important thing I've taken from your pod is that I've come to realize that there's luck involved. Hence the phrase, be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. It really strikes with me. Earlier this week, I felt like everyone else, sort of stuck thinking we were never going to get over the hump. But then this morning, I read Joe Biscalia's All-22 article on The Athletic. Ironically, what at first seemed to be another article to confirm the inevitable demise of our Super Bowl window actually morphed into 2020-esque optimism. According to Joe B., who I trust as a source, our lack of downfield threats, linebacker issues, and lackluster D-line performance were the issues. All three of them are not 100% due to organizational ineptitude, but rather simply bad injury luck. No downfield threat, no Gabe Davis. Linebacker issues, Milano and Bernard were hurt. D-line performance, Von Miller is slowly coming back from injury. The third may be more of a stretch, but there's no arguing that injury luck played a significant role in our elimination game and derailing the season. I don't think the sky is falling in Buffalo. I think we should consider that we've had two years of legit opportunity, and statistically, that's not nearly enough sample size to expect to have won a Super Bowl. We have a franchise quarterback, we have a GM that can, and has, hit a few dingers in the past few years. We just need to accept the fact that there's luck involved. We just need to enjoy the fact that we're really good and we'll be really good for a while. Hopefully, we get lucky. I don't disagree. I agree that the D-line performance is probably a larger percent non-luck involved. And I think the no downfield threat is a larger percent luck involved because Gabe Davis is a player who does most of his winning downfield, but he's still not a player that I would consider to be someone who is a a top-tier downfield threat. And I don't think Stephon Diggs was ever going to be that guy overall here. I think he's morphed into much more of an intermediate weapon since he's been with the Buffalo Bills. I think in Minnesota, they used him as a little bit more of the the deep threat because they had Adam Thielen for the other things. But since he's been here... It's been a pretty intermediate size stuff for Stephon Diggs. So I would have liked to have seen a little bit more investment there. And the investments that they did make, for example, like Deontay Hardy, just didn't really pan out. So I think that that one has a higher percentage of non-luck involved too. But I think the acknowledgement of luck brings with it a little bit of peace. Because for some reason, we seem to think somehow we have control over this stuff when it comes to the team. We've already talked about you don't have control over the team. We talked about that last week. But with the lack of control and the acceptance of the lack of control comes a little bit more peace. Now, it's not 100 hundred and zero, But if you say there's 5% luck, 8% luck, 11% luck, 12, whatever you want to percentage luck, that's 12% or 11% or 8% less that you have to carry. Now, ideally, you should be carrying none of it because you don't have control over any of it which is how you find total peace in it. Knowing that you have no control over any of it and you shouldn't own things that aren't yours. Everything in life, it goes into one of three buckets. It's something somebody else owns. It's something you own or it's data that no one owns. Everything goes in one of those three buckets. A lot of stress is recognizing what you're putting in the wrong bucket. Control the things that you control and don't stress about the stuff that is in the other two buckets. If somebody else owns it, then don't stress about it. And if it's just data that no one owns, like, for example, the sky is blue. It's data. Nobody owns that. No one is responsible for the sky is blue. Just, it is. Water is wet. It's just a thing. Nobody owns that. Two plus two equals four. Nobody owns that. It's just a, no one's responsibility to make sure that two and two is always four. We don't stress over these things. But I think that the acknowledgement of luck is part of the path to being peaceful. So for me, I think it's important because I think it helps people when they start to feel more stressed about their fandom is the recognition that, yes, I really want this thing and I get sad when I don't get the thing that I want. That's true. That's absolutely true and completely reasonable. I want the Bills to win a Super Bowl. They didn't. I didn't get what I want. Therefore, I'm disappointed. I understand that. That's great but that's different than actually stressing about something you have no control over. Those are two distinct different emotions. Daniel says, hi Bruce. I know you've discussed this before, but maybe you can plan on addressing it in the podcast this week. Anyway, I'm hoping you can touch on some of the malicious fandom that's been occurring this week, specifically Gabe Davis during the game and Tyler Bass after it on social media. I have my thoughts, but I would like to hear yours. There are two bumpers on human behavior. That's it. Two bumpers. Inherent moral compass and fear of consequence. That's it. One of the things that social media has done, it is allowed in a lot of cases for the removal of one of those bumpers. The reason why the phrase, well, you would never say that to my face comes into play is because there's no fear of consequence. I can just create another anonymous account and say that thing again if I get banned unless my IP address gets banned. Even then, it's not much of a consequence. So if if you remove one of those bumpers, which is the fear of consequence, then the only thing left to stop someone from doing something is inherent moral compass. And what you're seeing is that the overwhelming majority of humanity doesn't have the same moral compass that you do. It's the way it works. We have with the advent of technological communication and specifically communication anonymity, we have removed or significantly restricted one of the two bumpers on human behavior, which is fear of consequence. Because in the absence of inherent moral compass, the only thing that stops you from doing something is fear. That's it. If I'm a bad person, Right? If I have no qualms whatsoever about saying those heinous, awful things to people, sending Tyler Bass death threats on Instagram, if that is a, an inkling that I have, the only thing that would stop me from doing that is fear of repercussion. And if I don't have fear of consequences, then there's nothing stopping me from doing it now. My inherent moral compass didn't stop me. And I don't have any fear of consequences. The walls are down. There is nothing stopping me. There are no bumpers up to stop me from doing that. That's it. Inherent moral compass, fear of consequences. That's it. And what you're seeing is you're seeing this bleed over. Because people who would never have acted that way before, they can act that way on the internet now, and now it starts to bleed into real life. Because now they're emboldened by the fact that they can say these things on the internet. Now I can say it in real life because there's a huge gap between me and you. This player isn't going to come up into the stands and yell at me. The game is over. It doesn't matter if I get kicked out. There's no consequences for this. So if I don't have my inherent moral compass to stop me and I don't have any fear of consequences, I just do it. I just do the thing. I scream obscenities and horrible things at players. I send death threats on social media. Because both the bumpers are down. My inherent moral compass isn't stopping me and I have no fear of consequences. Bam, there it occurs. Every single time something like that happens, it's a failure of both of those bumpers to function. It's one of the reasons why I would very much like to surround myself with people who have inherent moral compasses because I can't count on fear of consequences to guide human behavior in today's society the way I used to be able to. I can't do that. There are... There's less consequences now than there have been. And there are more methods to display to people that there are no consequences or at least minimal consequences for their actions. If you wonder why your social circle might be getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, that might be a contributing factor. The truth is that if you need, in all circumstances, fear of consequences to guide your human behavior, it's because you don't have the inherent moral compass and you're a bad person. So now all we're doing is we're just seeing more bad people. We're seeing more than we used to see because all the people who previously didn't have the inherent moral compass, but they had fear of consequence. Now they don't have the fear of consequence anymore. So now they're showing up. Second half of this pod turned into sociology, but it is what it is. One last thing. Damar Hamlin, comeback player of the year for the PFWA could potentially be the comeback player of the year as the heavy favorite to win it at the NFL Honors. How do we define comeback? I feel like there's a mathematical way to do this. So if you're down by 30 points and you end up winning, that's a 30-point comeback. If you're down by 15 points and you end up winning, that's a 15-point comeback. Which one's bigger? That sounds insane, right? Of course, the 30-point comeback's bigger than the 15-point comeback. Is that not what we're doing with this conversation around DeMar Hamlin, the degree of the comeback is expressed as the distance between the point you came back from to the point you came back to. If you were down by 30, there was a 30-point gap. You overcame it. That's an objectively bigger comeback than if it was a 15-point gap. The gap between where you came from and where you came to. Joe Flacco came back from his couch to be a starting NFL quarterback. DeMar Hamlin came back from cardiac arrest to an NFL roster. Which one of those distances is farther? That's that's it to me. Like, that's the entire argument. Comeback player of the year. How big was the comeback? Well, how big is the comeback is a, a measure of where you came from and where you came to. So if you think he came back from not being in a starting NFL quarterback to being a starting NFL quarterback and going to the playoffs is a bigger comeback than cardiac arrest to an NFL roster. Then of course you're going to vote for Joe Flacco. And if not, then you're going to vote for DeMar Hamlin. I personally think that's Hamlin, but I think there's an objective way to have this conversation. And I don't know why we seem to be completely up in arms about it. When I actually think there is an objective way to evaluate the degree of a comeback. So we should just do it based on that. We, we do it with numbers. Why wouldn't we do it here? It's the same principle. Just because we don't have actual quantification of it doesn't mean it can't be measured in the same fashion. And that's my take. And hopefully I come back next week. I come back from a pod where the entire back half of it ended up being some sort of sociology discussion to a pod that says different things. I don't know what I'm going to talk about next week. We're, we'll find out. Hopefully, I come back to that one. I want to touch real quick on the Buffalo Bills promoting from within. Joe Brady named offensive coordinator and Bobby Babbage named defensive coordinator between the last time we talked and now. And one of the conversations that's been percolating its way around social media is, hey, the Bills promoted from within. They're running it all back. Hey, the defense didn't perform well. Hey... The offense wasn't as good as I want it to be. Therefore, don't promote Brady. Don't promote Babbage. Here's something I can't get on board with. I can't get on board with the logic of the defense didn't play well in these playoff games. Therefore, none of the coaches on that entire side of the ball could be fantastic coaches. This is an actual argument against naming Bobby Babbage defensive coordinator. So it's the idea that the defense is a monolith. So the defense didn't perform well. Therefore, none of the coaches on that side of the ball are good. Does that mean none of the players are good either? Because that's the exact same logic. Well, the defense didn't perform well. Therefore, cut everyone. Matt Milano sucks. Darrell Bernard sucks. Everyone sucks. Ed Oliver sucks. They all suck. It's the same logic. It sounds ridiculous, but it's the same argument. And it's not a good argument. You can live simultaneously in a world where the defense is disappointed and also Bobby Babbage is a fantastic coach. You know why I think Bobby Babbage is a great coach? Because he's a really good teacher and a really good communicator. We talked about that earlier. And if I have that guy going through the defensive philosophy for this week with the players as a whole and saying, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're doing it. I feel great about the defense being where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there for the right reason. I feel great about not having blown coverages. I feel great about everyone playing fast because they don't have to think because it's ingrained in their brain because they had a really good teacher. So I'm, I'm good with Bobby Babbage. When it comes to Joe Brady, what we saw this season was Joe Brady operating a hodgepodge of his ideas mixed with Ken Dorsey's playbook. That's what we saw. So the idea is, what does Brady look like when he has an entire offseason for his own stuff? It's not the same discussion as it was when Dorsey, because Brady's called plays before. He called plays in Carolina. He's not a first-time play caller. This is not the same discussion as it was with Ken Dorsey. Big conversation when you hired Ken Dorsey was, he'd never called plays before, ever. He was never even part of the design of an offense. And he was brought in to a system that had already been designed with Brian Dable. So this is a very different conversation. Do I think that I would have liked them to interview more people for the offensive coordinator position? Yes, I really would have. I want to hear what else is out there and what other people's ideas are. So here's what I'm going to do with Josh Allen. Aside from Joe Brady, Thad Lewis, but I'm completely fine with Joe Brady. And I'm pleased with Bobby Babbage, because somebody else is going to make a defensive coordinator if the Buffalo Bills didn't. So I'm completely fine with that. But promoting from within is not always running it back. Do we really think that the offense is going to look completely identical when Joe Brady has an opportunity to install his own plays as it did when he was trying to marry his own stuff with Ken Dorsey? Is that really running it back? It doesn't feel like that's running it back to me. It feels like that's a next progression. It's taking the next step. Running it back implies you're not taking the next step. You're just staying where you're at. And I don't think that applies here. So I take umbrage with the terminology that you're running it back on offense. And I take significant umbrage with the idea that because the defense underperformed in these playoff games, therefore none of the coaches on that defensive side of the ball are fantastic coaches. Because then the same logic would apply to the players. So I'm good with it. I wish, like I said, they would have interviewed more offensive coordinators. But here's what we got outstanding at this point. Who's going to be the QB coach? Who's going to be the defensive line coach now that Eric Washington left to become the defensive coordinator of the Bears? Will Babich call plays his defensive coordinator? I suspect he will not. If he does not, will he still coach linebackers? And if he doesn't coach linebackers, who will coach linebackers? That's where we got so far. That's what we got left over. I've said this before. I'll say it again. If Joe Barry is available as a linebackers coach, I'd like to see him. I did not like him as a defensive coordinator, as a play caller in Green Bay, but I think he's a great linebackers coach. And if Babich wants to bring him on board and McDermott wants to bring him on board and Babbich isn't going to coach linebackers, then... I would be interested. I did not say that we would be short because I knew we weren't going to. And sure enough, we weren't. It's a 40-minute pod. Sorry. I had a lot to say about some stuff. Next week, I'll be back with other things to talk about because stuff comes fast and furious in the Buffalo Bills content sphere. And hopefully it won't be as much, you know, sociological talk. But if it is, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Runways.